Welcome to episode 91, a heart-to-heart about appreciating the global and personal trauma of COVID-19, featuring Dr. Jamie Marich, professional clinical counselor, by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jamie Marich. Uh, Dr. Jamie is a clinical trauma specialist. She's an author, educator, trainer, and the founder of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. Today, she's joining us to really talk about trauma and how the current situation in which we find ourselves, the COVID-19 pandemic, how this is activating and reactivating past trauma. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Marich. We really appreciate it. My great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so why don't we start by you telling us a little bit more about your background and how you came to have this particular specialization in working with trauma? So I got into this field and this specialization completely through the back door. When I was an undergrad student, uh, my degrees were in American studies slash English. It was like a pop culture degree and history. I was a performer. Uh, writing was my real passion. And I never in a million years thought I'd be in the field of anything related to psychology. I took one psychology class in undergrad and hated it. And then I ended up working in Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina after the war. Uh, My family is Croatian, so that's one of the reasons I paid close attention to the Civil War in the former Yugoslavia in the early 90s. And then after I graduated from college in 2000, I went there to teach English. And you can't work in a recovering war zone and not learn about trauma. And I was mentored by a very wise American social worker who was doing aid work there in retirement. And she helped me not only get into my own personal recovery because I was struggling with a lot of addiction issues myself connected to being a trauma and dissociation survivor. And so not only did she mentor me there, but she helped me to understand that so much of what I was seeing as an educator, as as a teacher, was really connected to the impact of unhealed trauma. And I just became incredibly fascinated by having conversations with her, both for my own healing and learning about what was happening in the lives of my students. And so, I don't know, I I worked there a total of three years and towards the end of my time, she and, and another mentor of mine, my boss, really encouraged me to get my graduate degree in counseling. So they sent me back to the US I protested saying, but I don't even like psychology. And they said, trust us, you'll like it now that you've had this personal experience with really helping kids heal and getting on my own healing path as well. So that's how I got into this field. And because I I got into it through a lens that was so trauma focused from the beginning, I just naturally gravitated towards that as a specialty. It sounds like for you, it's it has a roots in a personal story, which I imagine for you means that much more. For sure. Yeah. So now that you have the specialization, tell us kind of what you do with it and and how you operate professionally now as a trauma specialist. Sure. So when a client comes to see me, and really this has been the case throughout my career, I, I'm looking at things from several different angles, because I think like a lot of clinicians, I practice with a very holistic mindset. However, I am of the belief that trauma is much more broad than just the PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. That if you look at the word origin of trauma, it means wound. It comes from the Greek word meaning wound. So see these old English teacher habits died hard. I always want to see, oh, what does this word even mean and where do we get it? And so I really appreciate and approach the work I do as a clinician as wound care. 
and that everybody coming in to see us has unhealed wounds of various degrees. And often it's only the largely untreated wounds that get our attention or the big cataclysmic ones that can get our attention. Yet the reality is that what we might originally judge as small innocuous wounds if left untreated and if they happen over time can really end up compounding a person's mental health issue issues more than just that one bad thing that might happen to us. So I, I really see my work as wound care in terms of how I operate as a clinician. And from my early days as a clinician working in treatment centers, working in community drug and alcohol centers with the dual diagnosis focus, I was always that clinician that was really kind of concerned that we weren't looking at trauma enough, that it was more so this model of, well, this is what's wrong with you. Let's medicate it. Let's treat it as opposed to, well, let's look at what has happened to you in your life story. How have you been wounded and how can we help you heal those wounds? So as a clinician, that's, that's always been my approach. And I think it's needed to be my approach because when I was uh, in my own graduate study, after moving back from Europe, I had to engage in a really intense course of my own trauma focused therapy. That's where EMDR came into my life and then eventually yoga and meditation because I knew I would not sustain as a professional who was also a trauma survivor if I didn't continue to work on my own trauma material. And I, I guess I was pretty shocked and scandalized when I entered the field just how much lack of trauma awareness there was in a lot of circles and some aspects of graduate education. And I'm not slamming everybody because I think some graduate programs do a good job, but I know I was left lacking. With, with real comprehensive trauma knowledge and understanding. And so as an educator, that's really been my passion and focus is to really help fill in a lot of the gaps that exist about the reality of trauma, what it does to the brain, what it does to the human spirit, and how an effective part of being a trauma-focused clinician is understanding our own relationship with unhealed trauma and unhealed wounding. And so a lot of the work I do, even as an educator and a trainer, is really trying to facilitate transformative experiences for people uh, to help folks see that even if you're struggling in an area in your own life, A, you're allowed as a clinician, because I think sometimes we can get into this mindset, right, that we're experts and have to have it figured out. And B, those things we struggle with, even as professionals, can really be the gateway to our highest healing that will not just help us to be healthier in our own lives, but will ultimately make us better clinicians. I, I really appreciate that perspective. And particularly right now, when we've talked about trauma previously, before this happened, you know, with the, with the exception of community trauma, there's this idea clinically of like, basically, if you've been through divorce, if you've been through sexual trauma, if you've been through, uh, you know, armed robbery, you need to do your own stuff, resolve it as a clinician until you begin doing this work with clients. We don't have that option right now. Right. When we're in a pandemic, when you're in a community or world-based emergency, you're going through the process alongside people um, that are seeking help. So why, why don't you tell us a little bit about really what trauma is, but then how trauma in that lens can be applied to our experience right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Sure. So as I mentioned at a very base, my very base humanitarian definition of trauma is it's an unhealed wound. It's, and it's not just the wound itself. That's the problem. It's the idea that the wound has not been healed. 
which often happens in our culture where messages like, oh, just get back up on the horse, keep going. You know, it didn't really happen. It wasn't really that bad. It happened so long ago. Don't feel your feelings. And when at the brain level, when we go through a traumatic or other wounding experience, if we're not given the chance to shift how that memory is stored in the brain, because when we're traumatized, our limbic brain is highly activated in order to keep us safe, right? When we talk about functions like the amygdala, the thalamus and all of that, but until the body learns that the danger has passed, we can stay in one degree or another in that state of limbic activation. And so what I mean by unhealed trauma is when these memory networks are stored with that level of activation that resembles what happened at the time of the original injury. And what a healthy brain hopefully can help us do is to process how the memories are stored in the brain from more of this limbic activation to activation that's more in the in the neocortex where we're better able to store things long-term, make sense of them. And yeah, so many of us don't get to process traumatic experience because we're not allowed to, we're not given the resources to, or our default coping can just go to denial or dissociation or that that it's no big deal. And so I believe right now a lot of what is happening is we're in a state of everybody's getting activated on some level. But even the nature of trauma triggering or trauma reminders teaches us or highlights this, this core idea that I, I stress in my teaching is that trauma is fundamentally a subjective experience. So what is traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you. What I have experienced as traumatic in my past may have been something that you or another listener was able to assimilate and make sense of for a variety of reasons that probably exceed the time we have on this interview. Um, but even though the experiences themselves can be subjective, what this damage does to the brain can be pretty consistent person to person, right? That that we stay, we can stay stuck in these activation patterns. And how those activation patterns play out can differ from person to person. For some folks, it manifests more as addiction and acting out behaviors. For other folks, it can manifest more as shutting down and other dissociative tendencies, withdrawing. Uh, one of the things I learned in my early career in Bosnia is how unhealed trauma patterns can get in the way of functions like concentration, motivation, uh, the things that can keep us stuck in life. Um, and so with everything happening now in, in COVID, in, in this COVID-19 reality, if you've not been forced to confront some of these old activation patterns and their impact on you, what is being jostled in your body now because of any messages you're receiving through this current experience is probably going to be getting highlighted. Now, another aspect of this, though, is I think there's a there's a tendency when we talk about trauma that it's all bad, right? That, well, trauma survivors are naturally going to be pretty activated during this time where we're in a collective trauma. But I know from my experience, a lot of what I've learned as a trauma survivor and a trauma thriver is actually helping me right now. Uh, there was a meme going around social media the other day I really liked where it said, raise your hand if 2020 isn't even close to the worst year you've experienced in your life. And I agreed. I was like, yeah, 2017 and 1999 were personally a lot worse for me. And I mean, even though I do have some activation loops happening right now, overall, I'm doing pretty well because I feel the skills I learned having to get through 1999 and 2017 have helped me now. 
but I also know I say that from a very privileged place of being able to have had really good therapy over the years to to heal a lot of what's happened to me before. And I have these practices in place that can help me manage what we're going through now. Where I have a concern and where I, I mean, I can't even speak to this because I don't even know how people are doing it who don't have like a a history of having had their own trauma therapy or a history of practices like being able to have yoga or meditation or healthy coping. Um, I mean, when I see the memes as well about talking about the quarantine 15 and uh, day drinking and all of that, if, if that's how people are getting through this, I'm not one to judge, but I also know that's what old me would have done at earlier points in my life, not having the skills to deal with this incredible amount of, I don't have a word for it, <laughs> just stuff that, that we're going through right now. Um, and, I, and I do think a big activating trigger for trauma responses is the unknown. I mean, even though I've tried to present myself here, and it's truthful as somebody who's getting through okay, because I have the skills to get through okay, um, there's a lot of unknowns happening, right? Um, and that can be at a very base level of people's needs with food, shelter, water. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns happening. I mean, I'm right now living alone. I have pets that, that take care of me, but I can only imagine what I'd be feeling like now if it was an earlier point in my life when I was in my previously dysfunctional marriage, or if I was in a dysfunctional home at this point in my life. Again, I don't know and I can't speak to how people are, are doing it other than if a client comes to me with that stress, I do ask them, help me understand. And how can we use some of these skills to best support you? Um, I think you bring up a really valuable point there, which is how individual this experience is. Yes. And it's, it's really difficult, I think, to, to find a phrase that appropriately encapsulates it. You know, we're, we're quick to say, you know, we're in it together, but everybody has a very individual experience and the amount of resilience that person has, the amount of trauma they have, the amount of mental health or other medical disorders, the amount of uh, social support they have, financial um, uh, flexibility. I mean, there's so many factors. It sounds like what you're saying is really, this is an individual thing and it needs to be approached like that, that we as clinicians can't say, okay, everybody's been traumatized. It's like, we need to look at each individual person and their individual circumstance and work with that um, on, on a personal level. Correct. Uh, another saying that's going out around there that I really like is we may all be in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. So the event that's happening and the events that are kind of being caused by it might be something that is happening globally, but how we're all being affected is very, very subjective. Uh, and that really, I guess I could say is not that surprising to me because this is what myself and others have taught about trauma for years, that it is a subjective experience. And in working with a client or an individual, we can take a both and approach, which would be pretty well known in DBT, right? The, the whole both and idea that yes, on one hand, we are all in the same storm and we're all being affected somehow. Yet on the other hand, we all are having incredibly different experiences based on so many variables in our lives up to this point. So when we're talking about trauma, it's, it sounds like from, from what you said earlier, what one person considers traumatic will be different than what another person does. 
on a collective level at a global scale, what makes a pandemic a, a global trauma? Like, How do you see that as a trauma specialist? I believe the, the, the strongest gut level answer that's coming up right now is the fear of death that is involved with it, the fear of physical death. And this is a very strong opinion I have, and I will do my best to support it. But if it's not your opinion, you have every right to, to disagree with me, that we as, as, as a people tend to fear physical death more than any other thing. And a lot of us have done our work to get us to a place where, you know, that's just one more thing that happens. Uh, and I mean, I've been very privileged to do a lot of that work because of some tragic deaths I've had in my life and because of some of my own struggles, having an intense degree of suicidal ideation that death is just something I've had to do a lot of work on. But in my experience, a lot of people I've talked to, a lot of people I've worked with, a lot of people I'm close to don't even want to talk about the D word. It just brings up such such fear and terror. And I think it's one of the greatest fears we have as a people. So when we're talking about a physical pandemic, that fret around, I could lose my life, I could lose the life of somebody I love, and I don't know what to do with it. That yes, I talked about fear of the unknown, but specifically when it relates to our physical life or death existence, it just scares a lot of people. And it can tap into old wounds about maybe a tragic loss you had at some other point in your life that you're still grieving and you could be justified still grieving it. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote a piece called What I Wish People Understood About Risk and Contamination. And in that piece, I really applauded that we're taking precautions because of this pandemic, social distancing or physical distancing, washing our hands, closing things. But I did ask in this question or in this piece, why don't we take the same level of precautions when it comes to physical and emotional trauma too? Um, because yeah, as an addiction specialist, addiction is just as much of an epidemic or a pandemic to me, but I don't see us as a culture addressing it quite with this level of urgency or concern. Uh, to me, unhealed trauma is one of the greatest public health crises of our time and how you just any cursory read of the ACEs study will give you this data on how unhealed trauma can affect a variety of our physical health conditions. But we don't look at that as urgently as like this concrete life or death matter that might be right in front of us that is a pandemic. Absolutely. And I, I've been giving that a lot of thought. So when you say ACEs, for anybody who's listening and doesn't know that study, we're talking about the Adverse Childhood Experiences study that basically is linking um, early childhood experiences with any number of mental health and medical disorders and different challenges as people age, uh, be that um, uh, poverty um, or employment difficulties, just a pretty huge scale impact coming from these roots of childhood trauma. And, um, you know, certainly I've been seeing a lot in the news that we're looking at this first wave, if you will, the pandemic, looking at the medical impact and then the awareness in the mental health community of that next wave that is going to be mental health related and that we're already starting to see that. I know I'm seeing it in my practice. And um, Jamie, one thing that you said that I, I really liked is this fundamental threat to our safety and to the safety of our loved ones. And if we're suddenly sitting here with a DSM in front of us, that's a pretty fundamental part of what 
what we would look at to diagnose post-traumatic stress disorder, that there must have been a real or imagined threat to life. And that's exactly what we're talking about. And that I think, um, I, you know, going back to the internet, I saw a meme that was floating around that was actually really funny, but it was a joking conversation between a therapist and client. And the therapist is saying, you know, um, you've been under a lot of stress re recently. It's understandable that you'd be having a hard time. And the client says, yes, but I don't understand. Like I should be fine. And the therapist is like, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. And the client's like, I should really be more productive and working harder. And the therapist is like, and we're on a pandemic and it keeps going. And then the mm -hmm. therapist is like, am I on mute? <laughs> yeah, but it's like the gravity lot. is just so enormous um, of what, what we're experiencing. And, and I think that at least for me, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, immediate when this happened and we were on stay-at-home orders to call it trauma, to call it grief. But I think as time has passed, I think we've all seen that take up some space in our hearts. Those two ideas, like this is trauma and this is grief. Um, go ahead. So to that point, uh, some other things I highlight in my work is just how trauma and grief are inextricably linked. That whenever you have a trauma, there's a loss somewhere. It can be loss of hope, loss of integrity, loss of, of trust. And grief, on the other side of that coin, is a wound, just like trauma is a wound. Uh, George Engel, who was a brilliant grief scholar, he was a psychiatrist that wrote in the 60s, directly said that, that grief is a wound just like physical wounds are wounds. And this process of mourning is that process of physical healing. And I think that I see I mean, again, experience is subjective, but I see grief being an even bigger impact for some folks than I might say our classical definition of trauma may be when I think about things people are missing out on, like their weddings, baby showers, graduations. Um, even my 15-year-old stepson called me when they canceled school for the rest of the year. And he's not that kind of kid that really likes school. And so it kind of warmed my heart when he's like, I'm just, oh. he's like, it's just not the same online. And I think with a lot of kids, there's this grief around not seeing their friends. And particularly if you're a child living in a dysfunctional home or, or a non-validating or non-affirming home, uh, that network you have to go to school or to interact in other areas of your life may be what what you need. And if you're not getting that, of course, that's a valid grief. That's a loss. That's a wound. So I'm glad you brought up kind of grief and trauma together, because I do think that's another important part of this discussion. Um, so let's talk for a moment about individuals who have trauma and how this could be re-traumatizing for them. And, and again, knowing that this is highly subjective and highly individual, but for those of us who work with clients who have tra trauma, i.e. Mm -hmm. almost all of our clients, you know, realistically, yep. like everybody has traumas, everybody's had grief. We have things we've been through, it's just life. Um, what do we need to keep in mind about what re-traumatization would look like so that we can see kind of red flags and what do we do about it? Certainly. So I will answer this question from both the perspective of the DSM and a model called the Adaptive Information Processing Model, which is what we use in EMDR. And 
both the, the new criterion of, of mood in the DSM-5 uh, under PTSD talks about these negative beliefs we can get about ourselves in the world as a result of a traumatic experience. So I believe the DSM uses examples like, I am bad, no one can be trusted, my nervous system is damaged. Uh, in EMDR therapy, we talk quite a bit about the negative cognitions we pick up about ourselves as a result of childhood experience. And it's not unique to EMDR. I mean, any other cognitive school of therapy would talk about things like schemas or, or whatever. So let's say that your trauma, your earlier trauma before this pandemic left you with a message like, I am trapped. Let's say you were physically sexually assaulted and that was the message you were left with at the level of the brain that I am trapped. Think about how being locked up in a house with people you maybe not feel so safe or affirmed with can be bringing up memories of that earlier trauma that's not quite healed. So I, I believe a, a key way to understand this is looking at what are the messages a person is getting about themselves in the world now through this pandemic. It could be that I am trapped. It could be that I am hopeless. And that may tie back to a message from an earlier trauma or an earlier experience. Uh, a lot of trauma survivors have cognitions around safety. I'm, I'm unsafe. The world is a safe place. The world is a dangerous place. And look how that is clearly being activated right now, uh, especially when whatever your feelings are about media, there's a lot out there that could potentially be tapping into the fear aspects of all of this. So I, my, my tendency is to look at it as what are some of the negative messages you may still be carrying about yourself or the world as a result of unhealed trauma, unhealed stress, unhealed grief from the past. And you can make clear links between some of those messages and how current situations might be imparting some of the very same messages. As you're talking about this, I can see um, different clients in my mind um, just thinking about their uh, tape is the word that sometimes I use with clients. And I know it's a term from like the eighties, but this idea of like this kind of tape that plays that there's this message and how it can be reactivated. Um, can you take a minute and talk about the power of tools like dissociation or denial in the face of something like a pandemic um, and this kind of trauma? Because I, I know I've seen on social media platforms, it's like, what do you do when you have a client that's just like, I'm not going to wear a mask and it's not a big deal and this is a conspiracy. And it's like, what do you even do with that? So if you could talk by or start by talking about kind of what that is and why it's there, why our brains do that. And then what we can do clinically to support clients that are struggling with the gravity of this. I mean, the joke I've made with my husband, who's also a therapist, is like, save an alien invasion or like an Armageddon-esque situation like a pandemic really is like pretty much as bad as it gets on a worldwide level. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty big, pretty big for us to acknowledge. It's a beautiful question. And, and I, I think my first tendency was, well, let's break down dissociation and denial as two separate constructs. But I, I, I would argue that denial is a form of dissociation. So let's, let's talk about dissociation first. Because uh, it's a word we can throw around as therapists and not really know what it means in the larger culture certainly doesn't have a good understanding of what it means. And once again, I go to the word origin and dissociation means to sever or to separate. So when we talk about dissociative behaviors, it's anything that we do to either sever or separate from an experience that's overwhelming. And when we discuss clinically significant dissociation, it really is this very inherent skill 
that our reptilian brain has to keep us safe, especially if we're small children who are being traumatized and we can't protect ourselves. So we zone out, we daydream, we maybe act out as, as a more hyper aroused form of dissociation. And, and how I like to help people understand dissociation is that it exists either to protect the core self or to help us meet a need. And so if we think of denial potentially as a form of dissociation, my question would be, how is it protecting you? Or how is it perceived to be protecting you? And how is it helping you to meet a need? And in my experience, having, let's just say, having had quite a few conspiracy theorists close to me in my life, <laughs> or people who don't want to believe what at least the mainstream well-vetted media is telling us is that those kind of denial messages can feel like it's, it's my way to keep myself safe. It's my way to protect myself is, is denial and in addiction, it's well known, right? There's that saying that denial is not just a river in Egypt. Uh, another acronym that can be used to break it down is don't even know I am lying, which has given me some, some laughs over the years. And I know we could make all kind of jokes about denial, but I think for many of us who have struggled, it is that fundamental protective mechanism that can keep us from fully embracing reality. And that may be the best our brain knows how to do to keep safe from day to day. Now, one thing I want to emphasize on my dissociation soapbox is I am a huge teacher and believer of the fact that not all dissociation is bad or maladaptive or negative, that there really is such a thing as adaptive, adaptive dissociation. For instance, a lot of us who are very creative people, it began as childhood dissociation, having really good imaginations, really good uh, ability to, to take care of ourselves inside our own mind. And I mean, I think we all need some some venues in our life that are purely unplugging in, in maybe a dissociative way. Um, I know the whole idea of binging Netflix is getting a lot of attention during this. And even before the pandemic, when I would give this teaching on dissociative versus mal uh, um, adaptive versus maladaptive dissociation, I would say, well, think about the Netflix binge and how for a lot of us, it is something that is truly innocuous, maybe even healthy in a lot of ways. Because I know for me, as somebody who leans towards workaholism and overwork, I would argue that being able to sit down and chill out and just watch TV and separate from my life and my work that way is a really healthy thing for me because I'm not overthinking. It's helping me rest. It's helping me feel. Whereas I think a more dangerous thing for me during a pandemic or during any other time of stress would be to just sink into more work, like more work, more work, more work. Uh, that would be more maladaptively dissociative for me if I was doing it to avoid feeling feelings. So I think what we're going through right now can encourage us all to look at our relationship with dissociation. What are the things we do to either sever or separate from overwhelming emotion, knowing full well that a lot of that is is cool. A lot of it we need to do, right? Especially during times like this. But if it becomes a pattern, a habit, something that keeps us from going there, feeling what we may need to feel in order to heal our stuff, that's where it takes on more of a maladaptive quality. And of course, some of the more pervasive forms of dissociation, like denial, uh, might be putting us or others in physical harm's way or emotional harm's way. And I believe that's when we really have to take a look at our dissociative profile, as if it's causing unnecessary harm to ourselves and others. So let's pretend you have that client. 
that is yeah. <laughs> engaging in dissociation slash denial slash whatever we want to call it, but are engaging in behaviors that right now could be risky for themselves or others. How do you clinically begin to address that and bring it into the room? I've se- I mean, I have seen so many social media posts, and maybe you have too, where therapists are saying, I don't know what to do about this. Because you know, most of us, the vast majority of us are working from home. And so if a client is doing something that's unsafe, then we are not necessarily at risk, but they may be putting themselves and others at risk. So I'm curious, what do you do? How do you start this? Yeah. Oh, it's a great question. And it's a big question because, you know, my fundamental thing, you got to do it case by case, know, know a person's tendencies with it. And, and in my teaching, I use this exercise that I call the dissociative profile. And when you, at the end of this, when we tell listeners how to get in touch with myself, there's a completely free online course I did a week and a half after social distancing about working with dissociation online. So people can follow up there if they'd like. But in any of my teaching on dissociation, I I really believe it's important to sit down with the person, explain to them in the context of your relationship what dissociation means, why we do it, normalize it, that it's fundamentally about protecting our core self or getting a, a need met that maybe wasn't met at some earlier point. And then I do this exercise called the dissociative profile where I have a person try to Uh, do a little inventory on all the ways that they dissociate. Or if you don't like the word dissociate, all the ways you, you disconnect, all the ways you sever, you split off from a current experience, especially if that's overwhelming. So we'll do a little bit of charting, like what is the experience that's overwhelming? What are some of the behaviors or some of the tendencies you can engage in? And what have you found so far that is able to really get you back to the present moment? Because another definition of dissociation my clients or other listeners may find useful is that it really is the opposite of mindfulness. That if mindfulness is this art of living in the now or being able to return to the now or return to the present moment, dissociation happens when we're so overwhelmed by the present moment. We just can't. So I help people understand a little bit of their profile for dissociation. And then we look more at the solutions. Um, when you realize you're getting activated or the over the now is becoming overwhelming, what are some maybe unhealthy or maladaptive ways you sever? And maybe what are some healthy ways that bring you back? Now, my big caution is this. If a therapist is going to be doing that exercise with a client, they better have done it for themselves first. Because our own ability to work with dissociation is completely determined by our own comfort with our own relationship with it. And I believe this firmly, that as a dissociation specialist kind of within trauma, I get asked a lot, well, how do I work with dissociation? How to work with dissociation? And my usual first comeback question is, well, have you worked with your own? Well, no. <laughs> and I, I just have long taught that the key to better working with it is to be able to more effectively normalize it. And until you've done that for yourself, until you, even as a professional, know your own dissociative profile, until you have an understanding of how parts may play out in your life, in your internal world, you're always going to feel overwhelmed to guide a client through it. So that's that's my short answer to a very good question. I appreciate that answer. So it sounds like you're starting with, um, you know, depending on the client, of course, and, and the rapport and the appropriateness, but starting with some gentle normalization and psychoeducation, like our brains are doing this for a reason. This is to protect us and, and figure out where it's happening and, and what need we're trying to met to meet. I can I can hear the invitation 
yes. that you're basically extending to the client of like, let's take a look at this. Let's take it out of the box and tip it over and, and I'll sit on the carpet with you. Um, so you touched on something, which is going to be my next question. Self-care for clinicians when we are in the midst of working with clients who have traumatic experiences that either we were working on the before or now everything is reactivated or now they're shutting down. And then we as clinicians being human also have our own soft spots and our buttons for the stuff too. Um, given your lens, you have a very unique perspective on this. What do we do for our own self-care and what adjustments do we need to make? Another amazing question. So my view on self-care for clinicians is uh, there's a lot of views, but I, I guess if I'm summarizing it, it's what are you doing consistently on a day-to-day -day basis for yourself? Because one of my concerns about self-care talk in our profession is we, we kind of make it out to be more of an event, right? Like I'm going to a yoga class on Saturday and I'm getting a massage and I'm taking a bubble bath. All good stuff. Do it. Uh, and, and I'm fine with self-care as event. But I do think the clinicians who are able to best take care of themselves are the, those who do something consistently on a daily basis for themselves. And maybe not just once, but throughout the day. So even in the pre-COVID-19 world, something I taught about this is in between clients, have one thing you do to help you reset in between each person that you see. So if client A is leaving, maybe you do something like shake your hands out, shake your body, take a couple deep exhaling breaths, almost as a way to say, I release any energy I picked up from that previous client. And then maybe you take three breaths in a forward fold stretch, take your, your spritzer, mister of essential oils, whatever does it for you. Um, stick your head out the window, get some air if, if, if you live in an area where that's possible. Uh, that those little reset rituals throughout the day, I think are, are just so effective at helping us to keep the flow going for ourselves, literally, as opposed to having the energy of what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis get stuck and stagnated. So I know in, in the COVID area, era, with working so much on the computer now, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about Zoom fatigue and online fatigue and how, and it's a real thing. It's, it's definitely a real thing. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the light factor, the screen time factor. And so for instance, something I do for my self-care every night is I put some ice on my head. Uh, it's very nourishing for me. I'm not recommending it if it's not nourishing for you. But when I have a tendency towards head or eye pain, uh, I have this beautiful kind of eye pack I can keep in my freezer during the day and wear it like a mask just for a few minutes at night. And I put lavender oil on it. And it really helps me kind of reset my eyes and take care of my eyes. And I do some massage rituals for my temples every night that can really help me with that. Going outside with some regularity has been super nourishing for me and others that even if in between each session you can go out and take a few couple deep breaths in natural light that having those consistent reset rituals through the day and uh, it's even more important if you are home and also taking care of children and family duties in addition to still taking care of your clients um, my, my hope is people can find a rhythm that works for them because I'm not here to try to give you a how-to that this is what works for me, so you ought to do it. Find what, what can work for you to give you those resets and do them with consistent, consistency. 
I'm glad you bring up also kind of the personal component of it. Of everybody, it's different and, and has different resources available to them. You know, I have I have a one year old and a five year old, and so what's available to me is is different than might be available to other people. And on some level, I also have uh, benefits of that. You know, I, I can't sleep until noon because I have a baby five forty five in the morning and tells me it's time to get up. Right. Um, I wish she'd sleep a little longer. But but we're all in these really individual situations. And I think one of the hard things I think a lot of clinicians are feeling is just a whole lot of pressure that we have these clients who are adjusting to this, who may be in crisis themselves, who are going through normal losses unrelated to the pandemic and feeling like we can't make space. And I know I, you know, I can't speak for you, but I know that I've even had that experience in the last couple of months of having one day that I was just like, this is too much, like this is too much. I need to scale back. And I remember the next, you know, once I'd taken a beat and acknowledged that it was too much and that I had taken on more than I could deal with in that moment, it was like, okay, then what practical steps am I going to take to try to fix this? So it was taking my clients who were, who were 80 minute sessions and saying, okay, we're going to be going down to 50 next week. And, you know, and trying to figure out kind of creative ways to change my schedule, taking time off. Um, I, I think we clinicians need to give ourselves permission to do that. And especially because we don't have the benefit of interacting with our colleagues in the same way, we have to be extra diligent about looking in the mirror and saying, when is enough enough? When is too much too much? And give ourselves permission to take a week off, to shorten our clients, to space things out, to figure out some creative process. Um, because I've heard from so many people in all different situations and environments right now that just feel pinned up against the wall as clinicians. And I, I guess, you know, speaking from my own experience, just saying like, oh my gosh, do I see you? And I, I hope we can give ourselves in this field enough grace and flexibility to take some time off when we need it. Um, because I mean, I know I have a partner, so I have two children, but I have someone to help me. But if I were a single parent right now, I can only imagine how difficult that would be. Um, so, so that's kind of my soapbox moment. But for those of our listeners, like, please give yourself space to to make time for self care. Yeah, and I think there can be a tendency because clinicians can be good at this of we push, push, push to avoid from feeling our own feelings, and that can translate as overworking or needing to be superheroes for people. And I mean, what's interesting about my experience with all of this is at this point in my life, I, I would say I'm more of an educator than a direct clinician. I mean, I still see clients directly, but a lot of what I do is training and formation and I help other trainers to who are kind of in our network to also work with their training businesses. And so I, I have found it's been important for us to gather together. We, we have monthly Zoom calls where people in the Institute for Creative Mindfulness Network can come and just check in. And I've heard consistently from our folks, it's just good to see other adult faces right now. And so you mentioned that some of us may be cut off from the normal accountability that we may have. And so my question is, how can you continue to, to stay in touch with that? Uh, and I know sometimes I can feel like I'm not staying up with all my friends because I have so much computer time I'm doing and screen time and text time I'm doing. Yet I'm incredibly grateful that I've, I've, I've developed a lot of good relationships up to this point. 
and I've continued to forge them even through COVID-19 with uh, just other professionals who reach out to me and network and really just trying to be that support for each other because that accountability is just absolutely key. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot of lot of good things that you mentioned. And, the, and I, I think a question I've even had to ask is, am I overdoing to try to avoid to feel a feeling? And I allowed myself that day where I just laid on the couch and cried and ate Doritos. <laughs> and tried not to eat that many Doritos because that's avoidant too. Um, but that's something my own healing work has, has given me that, yes, I've worked my, my behind off in a lot of ways to be able to heal and thrive in life. But sometimes that healing looks like just letting yourself be a mess for a while and, you know, we, we do our best to keep taking care of the people we're supposed to take care of through that. But I guess if I have one message for people, it's that what you're feeling is okay. And I think if, if we can go there, that, that's another issue of this that I think has been tense for people, right? That there's almost so much of this culture of judginess happening right now. <laughs> like, um, you know, it's not okay to be scared faith over fear, all of this. And the people who are overly scared can feel judged. And I know for me in the early days of the pandemic, it felt really good to lean into work. And then I eventually eased off of it and really let myself. And I felt a lot of judginess coming from, oh, you know, there you are overworking again. Uh, and I, I just, I, it's this whole idea of be kind to each other because people are feeling different things. People obviously have very charged opinions right now about how things are being handled either globally or in their local areas and people's experiences are different so let people have the experiences they're having and uh you can speak up if something's bothering you because yeah it bothers me when i see people not taking the mask recommendation seriously but i also know that hey we um we're all hurting here so be kind to people you touch on an important point so previously I had interviewed Dr. Peter Coleman and he actually just messaged me the other day that they've now released a conflict anxiety um, reaction scale, I believe, I believe it's called, or excuse me, conflict anxiety response scale. And it's this really cool tool that basically asks you some personality-based questions and how you respond to conflict and to stress. And, and I, as I was, I took it myself and I was thinking about different clients and I've heard from so many clients and I've experienced myself, you know, people are interacting in a, I think a really unusual way that I've heard from clients that like their friendships, you know, people are just disappearing or they're becoming combative or people who used to be like really gentle and loving are suddenly shutting down and that everybody is kind of responding to this in a different way. And it feels like we're all kind of riding this weird interpersonal wave. And I like what you're saying, which is kind of the, the extension of grace, not only to others, but also to ourselves and the understanding that this is a really unusual situation. And we all have these different temperaments and different experiences and different traumas that are going to color how we respond to it. Um, I know I've worked with any number of clients where it feels like one of the themes, I, I want to invite you into this because you are such an expert in trauma. One of the themes that I'm seeing a lot come up in conflict relates to control and to safety. Yes. Can you please speak to those two themes when it comes to trauma? Well, control and safety are two of the big trauma themes. I mean, at least from an EMDR lens, we talk about responsibility, safety, choice, and then power and value being like four big, four or five big themes that really, really hit. So um, my sense with choice is 
trauma can take away our sense of choice. It can take away our sense of control. And a lot is happening right now where people feel like personal control and autonomy is being taken away. And so I can see where some of the overreactions might be happening. And again, it's, are they really overreactions or is it a response to these unhealed trauma needs around control or these unhealed trauma needs around safety? So, I mean, a question we use a lot in EMDR therapy is thinking back over the course of your whole life. When did you first start believing this thing? And I think even non-EMDR therapists can make use of that question, that if, if a belief you have right now is that I am not in control because the government, my state, my governor, whatever, is taking all these things away from me, or I am not in control because my husband can die at any minute because he's immune suppressed, I might gently invite a client. So think back over the course of your whole life. And when did that belief first come up for you that I'm not in control? Or when did you maybe first start believing that the world wasn't that safe of a place? And if you are set up to do that deeper work with your clients, I think that can give you a lot of a gateway in. And I will say this, that as a trauma-focused clinician, I know a lot of our early care in the early days of the pandemic was focused around coping and stress management and making sure you're taking care of yourself. But as this has gone on, I've had clients do some amazing work about past early trauma that this is reminding them of. Uh, I, I had a client last week who just brilliantly blurted out during a session, and, and she's okay with me sharing this. She goes, I've been quarantining my whole life. She goes, I've been quarantining my choice my whole life because she's cut herself off from having the full and meaningful life she knows she deserves out of fear. And I don't know if we ever would have gotten to that at the depth we did if, if her current reality didn't get her to think about a lot of this. Um, absolutely. I think there's a potential for kind of a, a door to be jiggled ajar that we might be able to, to work within that space. One of my questions for you, so I used to work with the Red Cross. I did um, disaster relief right after Hurricane Katrina. And so we did all of the, um, all of the psyche valves after everything when you're about to fly out and return home. We have all of these things that we do as a trauma response within a community to respond to the bad thing and to try to basically inoculate people. So here we are now about eight weeks in to our stay-at-home orders in the United States. And depending on what kind of crisis timeline you're looking at, usually that says anywhere from six to 12 weeks for us to adjust to a major life change. How do you think that's factoring into kind of the experience of trauma that initially we were like, oh my goodness, what is happening? Batten down the hatches. And then now we're starting to find, I don't want to say new normal because it's so cliche, but we're starting to find a little bit more of a rhythm. How do you see that rhythm appearing with your clients and how we can work with that clinically in our trauma work? So again, the word is adaptive that I like, because yeah, I agree that the whole new normal is a cliche. Yeah, I mean, I like the word adaptive so much, probably because I am an EMDR therapist and trainer, and that's so much of how we look at trauma, that the key of trauma healing is to live a more adaptive life, that trauma healing will never take away the stress because stress will always keep happening. It's like John Kabat-Zinn has said in his teaching, mindfulness doesn't make the waves go away it teaches you how to surf. And so, I mean, as somebody who's had a lot of trauma healing and recovery myself, I like to believe that I'm dealing with everything that's happening in a very adaptive way. And sometimes we can adapt in a very healthy way. Sometimes our failure to adapt, I don't mean failure as a value judgment, but our resistance to adapt, our difficulty in adapting can be what makes us to feel worse 
So I think my tendency is to look with, hey, you know, we're in a big fear of the unknown right now, which of course that's going to cause stress. And I mean, I'm obviously in a more privileged position than a lot of other people right now. So I have to do a lot of empathy walking in people's shoes if 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 i because even as i say this like oh i could take it one day at a time i can adapt i realize there's a lot of people where that may be more difficult for (sighs) that all being said i think the fundamental question is how can we help you to live a more adaptive life here how can we help you adapt to what's going on uh and a lot of that may be needing to heal what is underneath that is making it hard to adapt to our current situation. And this is unlike anything the world has faced before. So I'm not making it sound like that's easy, but that is fundamentally the invitation that that I have for people um, is how can we, we help you to adapt? And this is like from a recovery perspective, or if you do anything like ACT or DBT, a, a little good old fashioned acceptance work might be required here. And something we really emphasize from a 12-step perspective is that you don't have to like something in order to accept it. You don't have to like something in order to adapt to it. Uh, you, You may even be downright pissed and struggling and in pain, yet fighting the reality that it's there is never going to make it better. So whether you're looking at this through a lens of adaptation or a lens of what like what might be called radical acceptance and DBT, I think that is my tendency on how I've had to work with myself, how I've had to work with people close to me. And we don't have a playbook for this because it's I, I'm glad you brought up that that scenario of like in disaster mental health, what we typically see is six to 12 weeks. But, um, you know, I, I have a very... Uh, dear friend of mine who's my recovery mentor and he's you know almost 80 years old and I asked him for some kind of reflection on anything in his life that has felt similar to this he has nothing 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 even comes close you know not the wars not anything we've been through comes close so I think it's very hard to know uh but the key word I like to look at is adaptation I'm appreciative that you used that word because I think we can get really focused on like trauma recovery or healing or these words that are really active and imply that there's the ability to recover or the ability to heal, which it's not that there's not that ability, but then I feel like there could be this additional pressure where it's like, have you recovered from dealing with the pandemic? And it's like, no. (laughs) I'm adapting. Right, exactly. I'm adapting. I am doing my best to adapt. and, and I like that, that you kind of added that interpretation, that reframe, because I think it, even for us as clinicians, gives us a little bit more wiggle room, a little more freedom to just support clients in adapting, to allow ourselves to adapt instead of working on, like, they need to thrive. And the, the joke I've made with a few of my clients is kind of like, well, you know, right now we're looking, looking at, at survival and doing our best to potentially embrace mediocrity. You know, like it, we are likely not going to hit a 10 out of 10 on a good day right now. And let's be realistic <laughs> about that. Well, and let's, let's look for a solid five and a half. And, you know, as long as you're safe and everybody else around you is safe, then let's do our best to adapt and then start increasing that number. So thank, thank you for that use of that word. I can, I can hear how that's already shifting my perspective of, of how to work with clients on this. Um, in this time that we've had, Jamie, we've talked about so many different things. We've talked about this idea of re-traumatization and how this pandemic 
is globally traumatizing, but also on an individual level, how we're, we're all kind of responding to it differently. Before we wrap things up and, and move on to the resources portion of this talk, what are some of those last things that you want to leave our listeners with in relation to trauma and how to support um, their clients, how to work themselves as, as we're basically just waiting in a pool of trauma right now? Yeah, waiting in a pool of trauma and some of us might be better swimmers than others or may have resources like rafts. Uh, that, that others don't. So I think to, just to highlight some of what we touched on, the key thing is to work with what you have, but to also um, create that consistent time and that consistent routine to be able to take care of yourself because self-care is not an event. It's really something we have to put into focus on a day-to-day -day basis to realize that as a therapist, you are allowed to be human. I think it makes you a better therapist if you're allowed to be human, if you're seeking out your own self-care during all this. I mean, I've continued to see my own therapist during this, and it's been incredibly valuable. Uh, and yeah, I, I think with clients, I mean, with, with appropriate boundaries, of course, there's no shame in letting your vulnerability show too. Because um, there, I mean, there'll be times I'll be in with somebody, whether it's a client or a consultee or a student, where I will just admit I don't have a playbook for this, or I'm struggling today too, and I'm I'm definitely not an expert <laughs> in this context, and I think that that can make us a, a lot more effective. And then, yeah, I think another big highlight point was this last piece we talked about here, which is the importance of adaptation. That fundamentally, that is, and, and it's not unique to me as as I mentioned Dr. Francine Shapiro that's a big part of her work from EMDR right and her most famous teaching is that the purpose of trauma healing or EMDR is to help people live a more adaptive life and so I think a message I would have is even if there are days through this you want to scream on the top of your lungs or withdraw and hide how can what that is teaching you help you live a more adaptive life in the long run because I'll, I'll speak something very personally about that. I hope I retain a lot of the lessons I've learned about myself and my process during this crisis. Uh, shortly before the crisis, I had a pretty bad mental health episode for myself personally because I was being overworked. Uh, a lot of that was by choice because I travel so much. I keep a, a heavy teaching schedule and writing schedule. And Literally in the weeks before all of this happened, I, I had a bit of a meltdown on my support system. Like I got to craft more time off. I have to. And then this happened and it was like the universe's way of saying, learn. <laughs> and uh, my boys in, in talking to me as they've asked me, you know, how's your life changed? What are you doing? Uh, they're, they're 18 and 15 and they've asked, are, are you going to be able to 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 keep this going when this is done, to not travel as much, to lean more on what you can do online. And I said, I really hope so, because my body and my mind actually feel like they're in a much healthier place now, even though a lot of this is, is happening in the world. And it's helped me to really evaluate what, what's really important here. And I still love my work. I'm still driven by what I do, but I've certainly put things in more perspective. Um, I can certainly relate with that uh, bit of wisdom and, and everything that you just said too, trying to hold on to whatever lessons we can garner from this, because I think it has activated um, thoughts we otherwise wouldn't have had for each of us. There's simply no way to go through this and not have some um, noticing, some reflection 
of, oh my goodness, I do this thing when I'm scared <laughs> or, or I just, I hunker down. And you may have seen, you know, we were releasing all these free CE courses, which I was really honored to do in the beginning of this, but I have every faith that part of it was, that's how I was coping. It was like, I need to feel productive. I need to be focused on something and have kind of this professional carrot to keep me moving forward or else I feel like I would be stagnant. Um, and it, we all have those ways that we're dealing with it. And as long as we're doing it in a way that's adaptive, um, it, it sounds like you're you're saying there's there's wisdom to be found here for ourselves, for our clients, if we can open ourselves up and, and embrace that possibility. Um, Jamie, thank you. It was delightful to spend this time with you. Um, please tell our listeners where they can learn more about the things you've talked about today, um, websites, books, things like that. So the easiest website I want to give people is traumamadesimple.com. Uh, so traumamadesimple.com is my free resources site. Everything that I do for free that is online, you can get there. So I have tons of YouTube videos, mindful living demos, uh, yoga, trauma-informed yoga demos, a lot of EMDR demos, talks, interviews, articles, this podcast I'll probably put up there too. So uh, it's it's just kind of a one-stop shopping to go to for my resources is traumamadesimple.com. Uh, if you want to study with me, I, I recommend the institute, well, not the, it's www.instituteforcreativemindfulness.com. And under retreats and education tab, you can get a link to our free webinar series that we did uh, in the weeks after all of this broke, including the working with dissociation in an online environment. So I have four really core webinars there that I think were important for us getting just some skill sets for folks working in telehealth, including that. Uh, so yeah, between one of those two websites, you'll be able to find me and what I do. And then another real fun one I keep is dancingmindfulness.com. Uh, that's an expressive arts practice that I do and teach. And there's uh, a lot of videos up there too. And I should also note for our listeners, we have heard from Dr. Marriage before. We have a podcast title, or excuse me, a podcast episode about expressive arts and healing. So I encourage you to listen to that if you've enjoyed hearing from Jamie. Um, thank you so much, Jamie. It's been um, enlightening to spend this time with you and, and also a little healing. So thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for your beautiful questions and best wishes and stay healthy, everybody who's listening. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.